okay, uh, is my full-time job being a Christian apologist? No. Um, so a little bit about me and, and my background and where I came from. Uh, I was not raised in a Christian home by any stretch of any imagination. Uh, furthest thing from it. And I was the type of guy uh, back when I was an atheist that I used to love to debate against Christians and destroy their faith. Like that was very, very enjoyable for me. Um, I was in my second year of medical school at UCLA when a lot of different events were working together to kind of, well, culminate uh, in, in, in my salvation process. So I was in this class uh, in med school and it was kind of like a uh, Big Bang cosmology class. Yes, in medical school. You know that you're paying $60,000 a year for at UCLA. And what the professor ended up saying, he said, you cut through all the scientific mumbo jumbo, in the beginning nothing exploded and produced everything. What? Raise my hand. Yes, Mr. Kirk. Did you just say nothing exploded and produced everything? Yes. Seriously? Yes. Okay. Well, my best friend from high school works for the CIA, and I tell him this, I'm like, I've seen a lot of really cool explosives that we've gotten to play with, as you can imagine, from the CIA, and I've never seen an explosion produce anything, and from nothing, nothing comes. Oh, I don't know what to tell you. I'm like, well, I'm not paying 60 grand a year for that. So immediately, I dropped out of medical school um, that day, and... But what was leading up to that, remember how I was debating against Christians and I used to love to disprove their faith. I hated Christianity so much, um, I, I decided to try and prove everything against it. So I spent about two years at my time at UCLA in the library there trying to disprove Christianity. Well, as you can imagine, what could I do? I could only prove all the historical facts of Christianity, dates, archeological things, science, things of that nature, right? So then I'm obviously getting very, very disturbed, and it culminates into this uh, event with this professor. And that was it. That day, I dropped out of medical school. I enrolled at Cal Baptist University in Riverside, so I moved up from Brentwood to Riverside. Well, not moved up, but moved north. <laughs> Let's put it that way. Isaac understands that joke. Um, so, and I enrolled in Christian theology at California Baptist University. And I, at the same time, at Christian Theology at Cal Baptist University, also uh, was double enrolled in Biola University, uh, which Talbot is their school of theology in uh, an apologetics class. It was actually the, the first um, series of classes that, that Alan graduated from. I was part of the, the flagship program. So I ended up uh, receiving a degree in what's called philosophical apologetics. And that was great, except I graduated, and then I think, well, how do I eat? <laughs> That's not a degree you can feed your family with. I mean, I could think deep thoughts about being unemployed. However, that's not going to work when it comes to feeding my family. So back to business school I go, um, back at UCLA, and I end up receiving another degree um, in business admin and finance and equity research. So I'm a financial advisor today. That's, how, that's what pays the bills. Um, as far as serving God, it's, it's this, it's, it's apologetics, and that's where my heart is. So what is the plan, or what's going to be the plan for this class? Well, we're going to break it up in a couple different sections of how apologetics basically stacks. And it's been my conviction over the past couple of years, many years actually, that the Christian church um, 
we've been attacking the wrong things as far as what it comes to defending the faith, okay? Um, sure, we're attacking things that should be attacked and dealing with subjects that should be dealt with, abortion or um, homosexuality or any of those things. That, that there are definitely sins against God. However, those are not the root cause of the problem, in my opinion. The absolute root to our faith is found in the very first, absolute very first verse of the Bible. In the beginning, God created. Without that foundation, it is my belief that we can't defend anything. So we're taking all these pot shots at symptoms of the disease when we should be defending or dealing with what the actual root of the problem is. If we don't have a world that believes in a creator God or accountability to a creator, none of that is going to make sense. Does that, does that make sense? Okay. So with that, the very first thing that we'll be delving into um, will be the existence of God, then it'll be the philosophy of existence of God. Then we'll get into the creation versus evolution. Uh, and we'll spend a lot of time on that. So how's that going to be broken down? Well, that'll be the age of the earth um, and different theories that come out of that and how they correlate with scripture. Uh, Day-age theory, gap theory, progressive creationism, if you guys have heard of any of those terms before. The flood, dinosaurs in the Bible, starlight and time, um, common myths that are used in the scientific community. Uh, Lucy, uh, the Piltdown forgery, things like that, if any of that sounds familiar, okay? So, brief definition of the word apologetics. Well, the word apologetics comes from the Greek word apologia, meaning a verbal defense. And this specific word is used eight times in the New Testament. We'll go over those verses. The first one is in Acts 22.1. Brothers and fathers, hear my defense, which I now offer to you. Next is Acts 25.16. I replied to them that it is not the custom of the Romans to hand over any person before the accused meets his accusers face to face and has an opportunity to make his defense against the charges. Next is 1 Corinthians 9.3. My defense to those who examine me is this. 2 Corinthians 10.5-6. Casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ and being ready to punish all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. That one's important because that's going to show the two steps of apologetics. You can have a defense of apologetics or you can have an offense of apologetics. And that's that one verse where Paul is actually using it as an offensive tool. Next is Philippians 1.7. For it is only right for me to feel this way about you all because I have you in my heart since both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel you are all partakers of grace with me. 2 Timothy 4.16 At my first defense, no one supported me, but all deserted me, and may it not be counted against them. Now the last verse that most everyone is familiar with when it comes to apologetics or that word defense. 1 Peter 3.15 But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, but with gentleness and respect. See, apologetics is the work of convincing people to change their views. Does that make sense? However, this was another conviction uh, that was placed on my heart during that time um, at, at Talbot and Biola. What is apologetics used for? Is it used to argue someone into the kingdom of heaven? I don't believe so. Here's why. We don't have that authority. Who does the saving work in an unregenerate person's life. It's the Holy Spirit, right, that regenerates their heart. I cannot argue that well 
of getting someone into the kingdom of heaven. So it is my belief that apologetics is for what we're doing right now. It's to equip the church to give us the, the strength uh, to be able to go out and defend our faith and to witness with much more fervor and, and just a, a solid knowledge that what we're telling people is absolutely true and we're not scared to do it. That's my conviction. In my opinion, it, it makes uh, witnessing a lot easier. It, it really does because at that point, you're not worried about, oh, I don't know what questions are going to come at me, or you're not worried about offending them or anything like that. You just know without a shadow of a doubt that the gospel is true, and you're able to defend it if need be. Okay. So Christian apologetics is that branch of Christianity that deals with answering any and all critics who oppose or question the revelation of God in Christ. So it can include such things as uh, studying the biblical manuscript transmission. That's called textual criticism. We'll get into that too. Philosophy, biology, math, evolution, and logic. It can also consist of simply giving an answer to a question about Jesus or a Bible passage. Apologetics can be defensive or offensive. Remember that verse in 1 Corinthians. So... Philippians 1.7 gives us the instruction for the defensive side. For it is only right for me to feel this way about you all because I have you in my heart, since both in my imprisonment and in defense and confirmation of the gospel, you are partakers of grace with me. And then 2 Corinthians 10.5 gives the offensive side. We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. We're taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. So, the apologist can and should defend his reasons for believing, 1 Peter 3.15. However, I want to point out something interesting about that verse. Let's read it again. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you, with meekness and fear. Now, do you notice it says be ready to give a defense of the hope that is in you? Why would you have to do that? That means you have to be going through something at the time, right? People are going to be asking you, why aren't you freaking out because this is happening in your life? This horrible event is going on. So being a Christian, does that mean once we become a Christian, everything is hunky-dory and just butterflies and, and unicorns at that point? No. And especially when it comes to being an apologist, if you are out there defending the faith, witnessing to people, you've just made a very, very powerful enemy, right? He's going to make sure that you don't have the ability to do that anymore. And I thought that was really interesting that people are going to be asking of the reason of the hope that's in you, but that, like I said, that means that you have to be going through some trials at that time. So basically apologetics can be what's called evidential, often called classical apologetics, or presuppositional. So evidential apologetics deals with the evidence for Christianity, such as Jesus' resurrection, the biblical manuscripts, fulfilled prophecy, miracles, etc. Presuppositional apologetics deals with the presuppositions of those who oppose Christianity because presupposition affects how a person views evidence and reason. So in this class, uh, we'll be dealing with both. The, the classical or the evidential view that gives evidences, and we'll also be dealing with the presuppositional view. Well, why would we want to do that? Well, goodness, take a look at what's going on in our world today. The reasons for people believing what they believe doesn't come from a vacuum, right? Their, their ideas have an origin. And once we can find out that origin, we can be more effective in engaging with those people. We can have 
more of a productive dialogue um, rather than just, you know, oh, well, that's that. You know, and we'll just agree to disagree or any of the other silliness that comes from. So I wanted to go over the idea uh, first as far as philosophical apologetics. So whenever you're talking with somebody, there are certain laws of logic and reason uh, that should be obeyed in, inside of a normal discussion. Um, they're called logical fallacies when they're not. Has anyone ever heard that term before? Yeah? So there's quite a bit of logical fallacies. And when you're engaging with someone and you um, encounter these logical fallacies, it makes the, or the uh, conversation go a lot easier because then you can address where they're coming from and perhaps you can steer the conversation to being back on reason. So what's the first logical fallacy? It's something called an ad hominem. What does that mean? It means attacking the individual instead of the argument. What does that look like? Well, there's a couple examples. You're so stupid, your argument couldn't possibly be true. I figured that you couldn't possibly get it right, so I ignored your comment entirely. Okay. What's the second one? Something called appeal to force. Telling the hearer that something bad will happen to him if he does not accept the argument. Example, if you don't want to get beaten up, you'll agree with what I say, or this is a classic one, of, unfortunately, that Christians have uh, mistaken. Turn or burn, that kind of deal, right? What's the next one? Appeal to pity. Using the hearer to accept the argument based upon the appeal to emotion, sympathy, etc. Some examples. You owe me big time because I really stuck my neck out for you. Oh, come on, I've been sick. That's why I missed the deadline. Appeal to the popular. Using the hearer or urging the hearer to accept the position because a majority of people hold it. So let's, let's roll back a bit. I want to make sure that this is relevant in, in what we're experiencing in today's culture, or lack thereof. Um, so let's give examples of how this, these are going to play out in your everyday conversation with those that are not safe, perhaps. So the ad hominem. Anyone give any examples of how conversing, I didn't want to say debating, conversing with somebody, someone is going to use an ad hominem argument where they're going to attack you rather than what you're saying as a Christian. Throw anything out there. You're a racist. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely, Mike. Mary, are we going to say the same thing? You're a hypocrite. Yep. Like, I, I see, yeah, you know, for Christians, they're hypocrites. Right. Appeal to force, okay? Any common examples that we can have of that one, which is telling the hearer that something bad will happen if he does not accept the argument. You don't turn the line, you'll be fired. Right. <laughs> if you're Dr. Seuss, yeah. <laughs> okay, appeal to pity. Using the hearer to accept an argument based on appeal to emotion sympathy. Anyone have that one? You're going to kill grandma. Very good. Did anyone, everyone hear Isaac? No. You're going to kill grandma. Right? Yep. Oh, here's one. Very popular today and is nicknamed Appeal to the Popular, using the hearer to, or urging the hearer to accept a position because a majority of people hold it. This one's easy. <laughs> I mean, we're hearing it all the time, so someone throw that one out there. Scientists agree. Yep. Scientists agree. Right. 
it's taught in school. Appeal to tradition. Trying to get someone to accept something because it has always been done or believed for a long time. Right? Everybody knows. Yes. Begging the question. Assuming the thing to be true that you're trying to prove, so it's circular. This one has worked both ways. Um, this one has been a major flaw of the church, in my opinion. Uh, what do I mean by that? Well, when people would ask for evidence of the existence of God, well, God exists because the Bible says so. And the Bible's inspired, therefore we know that God exists, right? That's a very bad argument on uh, the Christian's part. I'm a good worker because Frank says so. How can we trust Frank? Simple, I'll vouch for him. So what's another begging the question type of argument or circular reasoning that we're hearing to, in today's culture? I know this animal is 60 million years old because of some of these rocks that are 60 million years old. Right. What Mike's pointing out actually happened to me when I went to the um, Museum of Natural History down in Los Angeles uh, one time. Uh, I, well, as you guys know from UCLA, I grew up in California, right? Not proud of that fact, but... Um, so I'm in the Museum of Natural History, and I'm, I'm taking this tour. I'm already saved at this point. And we go, and we see this, this bone, and the, the tour lady says, well, this bone is you know, 45 million years old. Yes, sir. How do you know how old that bone is? Well, that's a good question. We know how old the bone is by what rocks we find them in. We call them index fossils. Oh, okay. Turn the corner, now we see a rock. This rock is 65 million years old. Yes, sir. How do you know how old that rock is? Well, that's a good question. We know how old the rock is by what fossils we find inside of them. Wait, what? <laughs> Back there, you just told me you know how old the fossil is by what rocks you find it in. Now you're telling me you know how old the rock is by what fossils you find in it. I said, isn't that circular reasoning? You're going nowhere. And the look on her face was priceless. It's like, for the first time, it, yeah, exactly. It was that. It dawned that, oh my goodness, this absolutely is. Um, category mistake is the next one. Attributing a property to something that could not possibly have the property. So attributing facts of one kind or attributed to another kind. Attributing to one category that can only be properly attributed to another. For an example, blue sleeps faster than Wednesday. Wait, what? This is the, the craziness that we'll end up hearing. Uh, saying logic is transcendental is like saying cars would exist if matter didn't. If you guys are confused, this is that those sayings that we hear in today's culture that you're like, I don't even know what's happening right now. Like you hear basically right now, you know, you, you create your own reality, right? Yes. And, and you're like, but, but I matter. So like what creates me? Right. Or the, the amazing one is gender confusion right now. Where you're just, I don't even have any idea where this is coming from. Cause and effect. Assuming that the effect is related to a cause because the events actually occur together. What's an example of that one? When the rooster crows, the sun rises, therefore the rooster causes the sun to rise. Can anyone think of a false cause and effect that's happening in today's culture? Touching the girls, <laughs> yes, not eating their food six times a day, but touching it, yes. Um, circular reasoning, we already went over that in begging the question. So something else called fallacy of composition. Assuming that what is true of the part is actually true for the whole. 
Let me give you an example. The engine is blue, therefore the car itself is blue. Okay. What's another fallacy of composition? Uh, you are weird, that means that your family is weird also. So give me a modern one that we're encountering today. I was mistreated in this church, therefore All Christianity is wrong. Yes, and that is a very, very prevalent one that we have to uh, deal with. Fallacy of division. Assuming that is what is true of the whole is true for the parts. So example, oh sorry, I already got that one. Uh, fallacy of equivocation. Using the same term is an argument in different places, but the word has different meanings. So an example, a bird in the hand is worth two in the bush, therefore a bird is worth more than President Bush. Okay, believe it or not, these arguments happen. Another one, evolution states that one species can change into another. We see that cars have evolved into different styles. Therefore, since evolution is a fact in cars, it is true in species. Yes, this has been said in the scientific community. I kid you not. Wow. <laughs> Fake dilemma or a false dichotomy. Giving two choices when in actuality there could be more choices possible. What's some examples of that? You either did knock the glass over this morning or you did it this afternoon, which is it? Someone else could have knocked the glass over, right? Uh, do you still beat your wife? Those kind of questions. Any examples of this one in modern culture of what we're seeing today? Well, you ask your child, do you want a half a glass of milk or a quarter glass of milk? <laughs> Those are your two choices. Right. <laughs> Why are you so hateful? Like, if you don't agree with something, you know, the assumption. Like, That's good, mind. but don't steal my, my thunder, Mary. Oh, we're, get, we're, we're getting there. <laughs> okay, genetic fallacy. Attempting to endorse or disqualify a claim because of the origin or irrelevant history of the actual claim. What does that look like? The Nazi regime actually developed the Volkswagen Beetle. Does it, everyone know that? Okay. Therefore, you should not buy a VW Beetle because of who actually started it. They're good cars. Super easy to work on, especially the early 70s ones. It takes like two hours to replace an engine in a bug. Okay? <laughs> They're awesome. You have to do it. Right? <laughs> there is that. <laughs> Example, Frank just got out of jail last year. Since it was his idea to start the hardware store, I can't trust him. So where are we seeing genetic fallacies happening today in our culture right now with arguments that's happening? Can anyone think of one or give an example? I'm gonna go with the transgender part. Okay. This is, this is part of my genetics. It's, it's a genetic deflect in my system. Right, right. Guilty by association. Rejecting an argument or claim because the person proposing it likes someone who is actually disliked by another. What does that look like? Hitler liked dogs, therefore dogs are bad. Hitler also was an art major, so therefore art is bad. <laughs> art majors. <laughs> or philosophy majors. The church doesn't support women's choice, therefore it's anti-women. What was that, Mary? The, the church doesn't support a woman's choice, therefore uh -huh. it's anti-women. Right. All of that kind of Right. The next one is what's called non-sequitur. Comments or information that does not logically follow from a premise or the conclusion. So examples of that. We know why it rained today, because I washed my car. <laughs> I don't care what you say. We don't need any more bookshelves. As long as the carpet is clean, we're fine. Wait, what? <laughs> <laughs> but how do we hear that one today? 
especially in our culture right now. What about evil? Hmm? What about evil? Mm -hmm. they'll talk, they talk about the existence of God, and then they'll say, but there's evil. Exactly. Which really has nothing to do with whether or not God exists. Right. It, yeah. Exactly. Poisoning the well. Presenting negative information about a person before he or she speaks so as to discredit the person's argument. For example, Frank is pompous, arrogant, and thinks he knows everything, so let's hear what Frank has to say about the subject. <laughs> what? <laughs> Don't listen to him because he's a loser. You guys can definitely come up with how this is happening in today's culture. Christians are arrogant and bigoted, so therefore any of their uh, ideas aren't woke or whatever that they're going to say. Red herring, one of my favorites. Introducing a topic not related to the subject at hand, and this will happen a lot when you're engaging with non-believers. Okay, what does that end up looking like? I know your car isn't working right, but if you had gone to the store one day earlier, you wouldn't be having problems. Wait, what? You'll be talking to somebody about, say, evolution, and then they'll bring up the right to choose as far as abortion. They'll just start shotgunning all these different topics that have nothing to do with what you're talking at, at the time. Does, does that make sense? Have you guys had those experiences yet? Yeah, I can imagine. Special pleading. Applying a standard to another that is different from a standard applied to oneself. Oh, that is definitely happening today, right? You can't possibly understand menopause because you're a man. True, but what does that have to do with anything? Those rules don't apply to me since I am older than you. Okay, but how is that happening today as far as applying a standard to another that's different than one applied to themselves that we're hearing in today's culture? Right. And they can actually be claiming things against you based on their rules and values. Yes. But they're criticizing yours. Rules and values. Your rules and Correct. values. Correct. As if you're bigoted or if you're biased. Right. But theirs can be baseless. Most people who, most people in, in, in especially in our culture who have no, yeah, like you're saying, like no specific set of values, they don't feel that theirs have to be consistent. And you feel like yeah. other people's have to be consistent right. and make sense and be reasonable and kind. Right. Standard, well, that's the key word to their standard, right? Yeah. So here's the last one. We're law and order unless it's our side. Mm. True. That's very true. Straw man argument. Producing argument about a weaker representation of the truth and then attacking it. What does that look like? The government doesn't take care of the poor because it doesn't have a tax specifically to support the poor. Okay. We know that evolution is false because we did not evolve from monkeys. That's okay. See, I'm trying to give both uh, what we've done in the past too to not do a very good job of, of furthering our goals as Christianity. Um, any other examples today of what we're seeing straw man arguments? If you guys get this idea of what this straw man is. I think in the case of just representing an old value of a group yes. that's no longer held. Correct. Which we do all the time but they do it as well. Right. Is you know, old evolutionary thoughts that just aren't there anymore right. because they've, they've evolved past it. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> but, you know, or old, yeah, I can't think of any that the church has held in the past, that, but old weird ideas that the church has had or different sects, and then they build that up and tear it down. It's like, yeah, but I never held that to begin with. So No, and it doesn't even matter. Yeah. Right? And we're definitely seeing that today with uh, the, the cancel culture, right? That 
just because you're a white person, you're automatically racist. Wait, what? So you are literally judging the content of my character by the color of my skin. Hmm. I remember in 1963 a man marching against that very issue, which we're now doing today. Just reverse. So today in hate speech, what actually is hate speech? Because we're being accused of it all the time just by expressing an opinion that happens to differ from theirs. So therefore, they're claiming that it's hate speech. What are the definitions of hate speech? And I want you to notice I went through a couple different sources from, well, uh, here, okay. So hate speech is any kind of communication, whether it be written or spoken, uh, that attacks in a derogatory manner or an individual or group on the basis of their religion, gender, color, nationality, social status, etc. So it's a term often used by liberals in their attack on Christians by accusing them of incorrect attitudes and beliefs. In that context, it is anything that does not agree with their particular viewpoint and is sometimes labeled as hate speech and ridiculed. But actually, what's the definition of hate speech? Dictionary.com, an actual dictionary, defines it this way. Speech that attacks a person or group on the basis of race, religion, gender, or sexual orientation. Okay? Notice that. Notice that definition. Attacks, actually attacks the person. So USA, now you're going to notice in these definitions, it starts to get a little bit slipperier and slipperier. More slippery? There we go. <laughs> as we keep going uh, down this path uh, as far as how they're beginning to define it. Now, usaeducationguides.com defines it a little bit differently. They define it as a term for speech intended, you get it now? The intent. Intended to degrade, intimidate, or incite violence or prejudicial action against someone based on race ethnicity, national origin, religion, sexual orientation, or disability. All right, now here's, it gets a little bit worse. Now what's this one? Definitions.uslegal.com. Oh, here we go. Hate speech is a communication that carries no meaning other than the expression of hatred for some group, especially in circumstances in which the communication is likely to provoke violence. Well, that's a loose definition. It is an incitement to hatred primarily against a group of persons defined in terms of race, ethnicity, national origin, gender, religion, sexual orientation, and the like. Hate speech can be any form of expression regarded as offensive to racial, ethnic, and religious groups and other discrete minorities and or to women. So if it, in their definition, if it is offensive in any way, meaning it gets a rise out of somebody, it's hate speech. So does that apply to uh, the church being offended that they categorize what we do as hate speech? No. No, and that's that double standard that we're talking about, right? So we can see that hate speech is that which attacks a person or a group based on race, religion, gender, sexual orientation, right? And has the potential result of inciting harm. So maybe they should actually study hate speech a little more, because that is quite literally what they are doing. Apparently they don't get it. And as you just said, don't we Christians have the right to our opinions? Don't we have the right to exercise the freedom of our religion and our beliefs? Well, we do for now, but it's getting smaller and smaller and smaller as far as those rights, in my opinion. But that may change as a result of the hate speech, which is often so directed at us as Christians. They like to name call. 
what do they call us? Homophobes, hate mongers, xenophobe, things of that nature. They label us as bigots, say we serve an antiquated God. Uh, in doing this, they commit the very error in which they accuse us, and here's how they do it. They degrade and attack us as Christians, a religious group, and I'm sure attempting to intimidate Christians into abstaining from the political realm and social structure of our culture, based on what? Just our religious beliefs, period. They degrade our Christian lifestyle, which includes the right to disapprove of homosexuality, bestiality, pedophilia, polygamy, polandry, pornography, etc. They also incite prejudicial action against Christians with their ill-informed misrepresentations of Christianity. Have you guys ever heard that argument yet? Well, what about the Crusades? Oh my gosh. It's like 1,500 years ago. Like, how does that even apply to me? I'm not out there chopping Muslims' heads off with a sword in the name of Christ. Okay? That... What's that? Exactly. It was illegal. You know, William Tyndale hadn't come around yet. So they'll sometimes call the God of the Old Testament a baby killer, murderer, genocidal maniac, homophobe. Now, isn't that interesting that they call the God of the Old Testament a baby killer? <laughs> right? Yeah. Such accusations can easily incite anger, hatred, and violence towards Christians. After all, if you accuse a religion, uh, a religious group, long enough, people will begin to believe the accusations. Now, how powerful is that if you accuse long enough? It's very powerful. Um, Adolf Hitler wrote an autobiography. Some say it may have been ghostwritten. Regardless, uh, it's called Mein Kampf. Okay? And in, in that autobiography from Hitler, he makes a very interesting statement. He says, if you tell a lie loud enough, long enough, and often enough, the people will believe it. They're more likely to believe a big lie than they are a little lie. Absolutely. Does anyone ever wonder, how did a nation wake up one day and be like, oh, yeah, yeah, no, that sounds great. That's a good idea. I want to exterminate, exterminate six and a half million people of a certain racial and ethnic group. And I want to exterminate ten and a half million of a certain religious group as Christians. That one's not really talked about too much in our, in our history books, in, in Hitler's extermination. Because of that systematic, constant rhetoric that starts to get believed. Because it's, it's over and over and over again. Uh, let's see. And, as we all should be aware of, beliefs lead, beliefs lead to actions, as we went over with Hitler. What would happen to Christians if everyone around them thought they were following a murderous, baby-killing God that was labeled as homophobic and casually supported genocide? What do you think would be our outcome as a whole then? Think about it. By labeling people groups Christians in negative ways, it makes it easier for one group to hate another, to become emotionally detached, increasingly irrational, and potentially violent. Would those thus indoctrinated by the hate speech of the hypocrisy we're seeing which modern societies seem to embrace so readily, treat the Christians with love and kindness or with fear and intimidation? Which couplet brings peace and which brings persecution? Well, such reasoning, though, however, doesn't stop them from their doublespeak and hypocrisy, probably because they haven't thought things through very far. We're going to go over that uh, in the course of, of this. I keep calling it a class. I guess it's a class. Um, is where ideas go to in their, in their absolute logical conclusion, right? Well, let's talk about that one for, for a sec. Um, do you guys remember when it was on the docket for Washington State for the approval of, of same-sex marriage, for the legalization of same-sex marriage? It wasn't that long ago. It was like six, seven years ago, something like that. 
Pastor Ben and I were having lunch at, um, what's the sushi joint by uh, across from McDonald's? GC's, GC's. So we were having lunch there. And of course, you know, I'm having lunch with my pastor, so we pray before we eat lunch. And this was happening, this was on the docket at this point. And someone comes up, sees that we're praying, and wants to start a fight, right? Say, oh, well, what do you guys think? You know, you're bigoted against this uh, uh, same-sex marriage and how, you know, you're going to vote against it and how it's wrong and love is love and all these other arguments. I'm like, okay, well, hold on. Obviously, you know that I'm a Christian, but I want to take that off the table, and I just want to talk specifically about your argument that love is love and, and how this should be approved. So, and how you, as a gay person, are somehow getting shafted in, in your rights and all this. So, let's remove my Christianity and let's just talk about constitutional law at this point. So you, as an American male, right now have the legal right to marry a woman over the age of 18 who isn't married already, whom you're not related to, and who isn't dead. I, as a heterosexual American male, have the legal right to marry a woman over the age of 18 who isn't married already, whom I'm not related to, and who isn't dead. I'm not seeing an issue of someone receiving less rights at this point. What I am seeing is that you want to either add a right that doesn't belong to me, so if anyone should be complaining, it should be me, because I'm getting denied a right, potentially, or you just want to define your terms and how you see fit. So you're arguing that marriage should be whatever love is and how you define that, right? Well, as we know in today's culture, there are some extremely twisted definitions of what love is. Where do we end it? Seven years ago, I made the statement, it won't be long. It won't be long before a 40-year-old is going to claim that he loves a 10-year-old and he should be allowed to marry her. What are we seeing today? We're seeing that very thing. Because they're using this rubber ruler to define their terms of what love is, which is not at all what that was meant to be when we talked about marriage. Okay. So finally, it's not bigoted, narrow-minded, or hate speech to say that we follow God and believe that homosexuality, pornography, pedophilia, rape, adultery, etc. are all wrong. We are expressing the freedom of our religion at this point. In spite of what they fear and foment, rest assured that it is our righteousness and our truth that we are persecuted, reviled, mislabeled, and falsely accused by those who seek to sit judgment over our own faith. And just remember that as we're engaging with these folks, I know it's easy, especially because we're so passionate in our beliefs, to try and, not to try, um, but to look at them and, and then you get angry with them themselves, right? Don't do that. <laughs> they are still a lost soul. And at this point, um, you have to look at where the ideas are coming from. It's the idea that we're wanting to attack and dismantle, not the person. Does that make sense? Um, it's, you, you want to make sure that you're addressing them. And that's the whole issue that we're having in today's culture right now, as we as Christians are making our claims to absolute truth, for example, um, exclusivity, that there's only one way to heaven through Christ. They're twisting that to say that our statements are somehow attacking them as a person. And that comes from a new-ish idea called relativism. You know, true for you, but not true for me. Where if you have any exclusive claim to truth, somehow you are denying that person as a whole their personhood. 
just doesn't fit at all. Nowhere did I say, because I disagree with your idea, that you yourself are a dirtbag and unworthy of life, right? I just said your idea happens to be wrong. Your ideas do not equal you. Does that make sense? Except in the very unique case of Christianity, our ideas actually are our identity. And they're not ideas, they are the teachings of Christ. It is who we are as a, as a fundamental whole. Any questions so far? It's going to be a lot. Is that special pleading, though, at that point? Yeah, like, it is. If it's, if it's but it, that our ideas are our identity, but their ideas aren't their identities, isn't that? Because couldn't their identity also be defined by their ideas? If yes. their ideas define that, just like our ideas define that? Right. So we have to be very, very careful in what we're dealing with and when, how we are engaging with these people, okay? We want to make sure when you're taking a look at where they're coming from, and there's always a reason of where or why what they're coming from. That can that be defined as an actual identity or is it just an idea? Yeah, Mary. So I've had over people think when you try to have a logical discussion that you're tricking them because they don't know what logic is because they've never been taught reason. Mm -hmm. And so even though they, you can see they're, they're realizing what's not adding up, they're re like they'll, they'll often reject that realization. I think because so many people think this, they just right. want to try to, they're like, well, I can't think like you because you're, they are so convinced that you're all these things, right? Yeah. So they can't yeah. come back. So is there a way that you help calm them down in a way that like just can, can you take some time to look at this? Or how do you, like, sure. how do you address someone to try to get them to look at Well, in, in two part, and what Gabe brought up was actually very important because we as Christians can also um, be as guilty as committing all of those logical fallacies as what we're arguing against, right? And we have to be cognizant of that, that as we're having these conversations, yes, we do have absolute truth, but we still have to abide by the laws of logic as we're expecting them to do so, okay? Now, how do you, if I'm hearing that correctly, how do you diffuse that situation when they're just freaking out because you disagree with them, right? Well, it's more that they realize that they're, you know, because when you walk someone through a logical thing, they'll realize even like that what they're saying doesn't make sense. Yeah. But then they realize the next step would be to accept that what you're saying does? Don't know. <laughs> either they don't know or that there's another truth there, right? But sometimes there's so much resistance to that because, and they feel like you're tricking them because right. they don't know how to think that way. Right. And so I sometimes wonder how, how to help them calm down in a way and just go through the process and just, and just be open to the process, I guess, of, of thinking about something differently than they might have already decided. So at that point, um, and I absolutely agree with Stan to Reason and what Alan had shared, you just Columbo the snot out of them. What does that mean? Well, how'd you come to that conclusion? Can you prove what you're saying is true? So if you're not talking and you're just asking questions and you're making them prove their point, in my experience, you have come across where they'll be like, well, you're going to come across one or two people in that conversation. You're going to come across the actual thinker where they're going to, huh, yeah, that doesn't work, does it? 
And that's awesome, yeah. right? If you can have a conversation with that person, that's great. Because at that point, you can actually just dialogue and have a, have a great example. And then you'll come across the other person, which is just purely emotional. And that's why God includes those verses of what? Casting pearls before swine, things of that nature, right? Where at that point, all you have to do, all, not all, but what's in your power is you present the gospel and shut up and let God do the work. That's it. That's the only thing we can do. I mean, you can go round and round and round in these conversations for hours, but it's not going to produce any fruit because you'll have those emotional people. Um, Sean? Yeah. Um, Alan also mentioned, like, when you can see a person starting to get tripped up, you don't need to hit that nail one more time. No, you don't. That's very right? good. The idea is to hold back and understand that you have a superior argument and let them come to the realization. If they're already hot, I would say, you know, clearly, you know, this, this conversation isn't going to be productive anymore. Right. And just let them stew in it. Right. Yeah. Right. And, and hopefully... You don't have to win the argument. No, you don't. You just let it go. And I'm glad you brought that up. Okay, so after graduating with my newfound degree in apologetics and able to basically win arguments, um, that was taught to me very harshly by the Holy Spirit uh, right after school. Because I was very convicted as, what, do I, what am I doing? What is my purpose here? Is it to win an argument or is it to win a soul in the kingdom of heaven? What is more important? Well, my pride says I want to win the argument. I want to appear intellectually superior to this person and somehow feed my own ego. That's not it at all. Not even remotely, right? Our goal is to just present the gospel. Our goal with this apologetics, in my opinion, is to make sure that we have the reasons behind our faith, that we can have the, the gumption, you know, the, the absolute strength to go out and witness to people, and we're not afraid anymore. We're not scared, we're not nervous of how those conversations are going to be, even when they don't make sense. And trust me, there are a lot of those conversations that won't make sense. And you have no idea why that conversation happened. The biggest one in my mind, as far as that example, it was after 9-11, like right after 9-11, I think in November. Um, I still lived in California. I flew up here to come visit my sister and spend Thanksgiving with her. So if you guys flew after 9-11, I mean, it, you think TSA is bad now? Holy cow, it was a nightmare after 9-11. I mean, you had armed National Guard with M16s. Like, it was nuts to try and get through airport security. So I'm on the window seat, Alaska Airlines. There's a lady next to me in the middle seat. And, you know, I'm reading my Bible, and God is just screaming at me to witness to this lady. Tell her about me. Tell her about me. Oh, my gosh. Like at the beginning of the flight, right? It's great. Tell her about me. Okay. Okay. Fine, God. So I begin to talk about Christ to her. I get maybe 48 seconds into my, my conversation with her. What's her response? She turns to me, cusses me out, one up one side, down the other. Can I just read my blankety-blank newspaper. I don't want... Da, 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 just goes off. I'm sitting here. Awesome. <laughs> Thanks, Lord. Couldn't I have had this conversation in like the last three minutes of the flight? That would have been easier instead of the first two and a half hours. Why did that conversation have to happen? I have no idea. None whatsoever. Could I have won the argument? Probably not at that point. I mean, look at the response of the lady. But the point is is to be obedient to God and to share the gospel. Because 
what we're experiencing in the world right now is, oh my gosh, the world is sick and hurting. Very, very much. Probably worse than what we have ever seen. It's, it's nuts. And those of us, especially with young children, I mean, you're, you're looking at, oh, this is what my kids are going to grow up in? This is craziness. Or grandkids or whatever that we have, the next generation that we're going to be responsible for. But there is a way that we can affect that change, I believe. And that is by just having the gumption to go out and share the gospel. I feel that over the years, the Christian church has failed quite significantly at that point. We've just been sitting on the back burner. We really haven't um, been taking that opportunity to defend the faith and actually give logical reasons as far as why we believe what we believe. And we just, we're lazy, I suppose, is what had happened at that point. And it all began in 1963 when a lady named Madeline Murray O'Hare effectively removed prayer from public schools. And we sat by and we did nothing about it. And we continue to sit by in our culture and do nothing about the, the atrocities that are happening. And like I said at the very beginning, we're taking the pot shots at the symptoms of the disease rather than the root. And it's my belief that we need to start actually attacking the root. And once we have the ability to do that, preferably, God will uh, intervene at that point. Uh, any other questions? No? Okay. So we totally answered world problems today? <laughs> so next week, um, we're going to... Oh, that, that was my question. So I asked... Ben, um, how deep do you want me to go? Obviously, I have a college degree in this stuff. So how deep do you guys want to go in this? I mean, we can be, you know, just a, a great surface level, or we can full-on go college level in this kind of stuff. So it's up to you guys, because next week we're going to deal with the existence of God, next couple of weeks, um, the philosophical and scientific evidence. Yes, there is scientific evidence for the existence of God, but we'll get into that next week. So how deep do you guys want to go? Provide printed materials, I mean. Yeah. Or emails, I mean. I or can, emails. Yeah. Well, or just ref, like some, if you have resources you're using the, the research as you're teaching or if, because for me sometimes it's so, I understand pieces, but if I could review it, it okay. would be easier to see. Yeah, absolutely. So maybe we'll just get an email list uh, together or something, and, and we can send that out um, as far as notes. Um, I'll also be recommending a lot of different books uh, for you guys to read. Has anyone not read Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis? Okay. You have not? Okay. <laughs> so that is one of the finest um, intro to apologetics and exist existence of God books that there is. I would definitely recommend you pick up a copy. It's called Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis, the same author as the Chronicles of Narnia. Yes, the children's books. He was a brilliant theologian and apologist, probably the most of the 20th century. Um, and it might be a little difficult to wade through. He, he starts to get into some some deep stuff in there, but if you have any questions, 
you know, you can shoot me a text or uh, email or a Facebook message, however you want to communicate, and, and we'll go over that, okay? But that's really, in my opinion, that's going to help um, you get this idea of that God is real. Because to give you a little bit of background, what's happening in Mere Christianity at C.S. Lewis when he's writing this, um, he's newly-ish saved. Now, C.S. Lewis was led to Christ by J.R. Tolkien, a Roman Catholic. <laughs> And C.S. Lewis becomes a Protestant. So uh, it, you know, it's, it's an interesting dichotomy here. And then later on, he loses the love of his life, his wife. She dies of cancer. Uh, and he writes a couple other books because he's, he's wrestling with his faith at this point. And he writes A uh, Great Divorce and A Grief Observed. And we'll get into that. But I, I do want you guys to pick up a copy um, of C.S. Lewis, or you can get it from the library or Audible or something. I think the kids in the college group got it on Audible, if you guys like listening to books. And that works really, really well. Um, yes, Mary. I was going to say, I, I think it is, you're talking about the hope that, that you know, we, we defend the hope that's in us, and I, I do think many of us may have been raised in, in Sunday schools and churches where we were manipulated through inaccurate uh, reasoning yeah. to not be allowed to engage in true thought about real issues right. and the implications because actually it's kind of painful it is to, to clearly look at some of these things um, and so for me I, I do think it, it's really cool going through this like you said to actually allow us that same process we're hoping for other people to go through in the ways that maybe we have to enter that in different our own reasoning right and, yeah and, 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 I'm, and I'm glad you brought that up because um, <laughs> I try to not be an offensive guy, but somehow that's just how it happens. Um, because there's going to be a lot of information in this class that's going to really completely go against the grain of how we were um, brought up. We meaning those of you folks that were brought up in the church, I was not. Uh, I was brought up in the antithesis of that. But the way historically and that I've viewed and I've looked at it that we have been taught, it really has done us a disservice um, when it comes to to reasoning our faith and working out our own salvation with fear and trembling as we're commanded to, right? So I don't mean to offend anybody if I do in the future, um, but, but I want to kind of throw that, that out there that we're going to be dealing with subjects of historically how we've been taught, those of us that grew up in the church, that it was either a logical fallacy or it was it was done very, very poorly. Uh, and on some things, I, really admit, I don't know on the, the true things we can't know completely or it's a mystery on, on certain aspects. Yeah. I think that builds a better relationship with the people I talk to. Because sometimes there's yeah. things where you get and you're like, I don't know. I'm not even sure that you can know on that one. I'll, sure. I'll look at it. Right. And, and that holds more weight than just trying to make something up. You know, if you're going to get back to someone. So after we after we finish um, all of the the parts that we're going to end up doing, you know, going through the existence of God and evolution and all of that. Um, at that point, I would like to just once a week um, pick special hot topics that's going on in the news, and we'll deal with that um, as an apologetic way. So. For example, if we had finished this, if it had been 15 weeks ago or whatever it's going to be, uh, what do you think we'd be dealing with today on Dr. Seuss, right? <laughs> That's what we'd be dealing with. Okay, we're done. 